It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And I would also like to add shalom to the greetings today uh, because we have some very special guests in our studio. And I want to, uh, I'm very honored to have them in the, in the studio with us today to talk about a very powerful movie. Uh, one that's going to have uh, a premiere uh, both uh, at uh, TIFF uh, in the next uh, coming coming days as well as with the History Network. And it is called Cheating Hitler. And it, it it's a very powerful film. Uh, it is a documentary. And I'm uh, very honored to say that I have uh, one of the survivors that uh, and one of the people that are in the movie. And it is Rose Lipschick. And uh, she is here with her granddaughter, who is Sarah Dale. And it's a pleasure to have them along with Rebecca Snow and uh, the director of this film. So I want to welcome them, and I really appreciate them being in here. Uh, the name of the film, once again, Cheating Hitler, Surviving the Holocaust. So to begin this conversation, um, I found it very interesting, of course, that you were you found three survivors here in Canada. That you, you decided to share their stories. Uh, of course, going back to the Second World War, um, the survivors of the Holocaust would be children um, at, at this point in time. But I guess my first question is to you, why did you think it was important to, to bring this story forward? Yeah, well, it's, it's, um, it's 75 years since the end of the Second World War. Um, 2019, 2020 is going to be the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the concentration camps. So, you know... Um, it's important to remember that the Holocaust, in that genocide, six million Jews um, were killed. Um, and so History Channel wanted to air a Remembrance Day documentary um, that uh, brought to light the history of the Holocaust. And we found um, three incredible stories, three survivors who are now living in Canada um, and we took them uh, on a journey. The, the documentary has a sort of investigative element where we took them back to places that they hadn't been to. In some cases, in the case of Rose, you know, she hadn't been to some of these places in Poland um, since 1942. Um, and they were trying to find answers to some of the questions or uh, mysteries that, that had been haunting them for their entire lifetime in some cases. Uh, do you mind uh, telling us the other two people that are the, the stories that they're, they're told in the story as well? Yeah, so three survivors: um, Rose, uh, who is who was from Poland; um, Maxwell, who was from what is now the Ukraine; and Helen Maxwell Smart is his name. He lives in Montreal now, and Helen Yermas, who lives in Toronto now, but she is originally from uh, Kaunas, Lithuania, that was then known as Kovno. Um, I understand you you reached out some, to some other organizations to try and and help with this story and tr- sort of fleshing some of this out. Do you want to mention that? Yeah, so the way that we um, we found, uh, we came across these survivors is, is uh, there are a lot of organizations that are doing incredible work um, trying to get down the testimony and uh, the stories of these people who lived through these events. You know, there's there's we're getting to a point where there's actually not, there's not many survivors alive today who can talk about this. Um, and so there are a lot of places that are trying to help document this and keep it as, as sort of living memory, as, as, as public knowledge that, that these events happened. And some of the places, um, the Azrieli Foundation, 
Um, Yad Vashem is a big organization in, in Israel and a big museum in, in Jerusalem, and they have a huge Holocaust center um, where they're documenting all these stories. There are a lot of places that are doing this, the Nuremberger Center here in, here in Canada. Um, and through some of these organizations, there's also a March of the Living, which is an organization that, uh, that takes survivors back to places in Europe um, to guide people around and tell people, share their stories. They helped us very much with trying to find some of these survivors here in Canada who, who could tell their stories. Yeah, you mentioned March of the Living, uh, and that is uh, they're co- co-presenters of the, uh, the TIFF presentation at the Bell uh, TIFF Lighthouse uh, on November 6th, correct? Yes. The, uh, the, um, tomorrow night, November 6th, there's a, there's a screening at the Bell TIFF Lightbox, and uh, March Living um, were, were advisors on the film, and they're co-sponsoring that event, yeah. And uh, I understand that you're, you're also going to have the, the three, three survivors there with you? That's right. Rose is going to be there tomorrow night, and Helen and Maxwell will be there as well. Uh, before we we ask uh, 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 Rose to to say a couple of words, I, I'd like you to because I'm sure when you were looking into this, trying to find some people to to contribute and be a part of the story, you must have found also some other people that, of course, decided not to for for reasons. Uh, I'm just wondering if you can elaborate or share a little bit of that. Yeah, we we um, th- there are obviously so many stories. Um, you know, there's there's a, there's a an estimate that 1.5 million children died during the Holocaust. Um, and uh, we definitely wanted to, um, you know, tell the stories of children's experience during the Holocaust. Um, and so we were looking for um, very sort of different experiences that some some, some, some of them that maybe pe- people haven't heard before. You know, I think a lot of people are very familiar with the Anne Frank story. Um, you know, children in hiding, children at camps. Um, in our film, the three stories are all quite different. You know, uh, we have the stories of children in, in ghettos and then in camps. We have children, stories of children, um, their whole families being taken off to the edges of villages and shot, and then the children running off into the into the woods um, and surviving that way, just digging themselves a hole. Maxwell dug himself a hole in the woods in the Ukraine and lived lived uh, there for a year. In hiding, and and of course Rose um, was separated from her entire family in 1942 in Poland. So um, we also interviewed uh, some other survivors, um, uh, and all of these stories need to be told. But this is an 88-minute film, and there's not, hmm. you know, there's only a certain amount of time. And we also we really wanted in the film to take people back to places and. Uh, look into questions that they had about, you know, people who are open to ask questions about what happened or questions that mysteries that they have. And um, in the case of the three survivors that we ended up uh, featuring, um, they all were willing to go back and ask these questions. And and, and in most of the cases, we actually answered them, which was an incredible, um, a really remarkable thing for documentaries because it doesn't always happen. And, you know, uh, I guess why I was asking that is because I think that it takes a a great amount of courage for people to want to come forward and and share those and be able to and be willing to open up their lives and share those those questions and share their lives with with others about this uh, this horrible, horrible uh, time in our history. Absolutely. We're incredibly lucky um, to be able to hear these stories from these people. Um, and it's so important to hear them. And I'm, I'm sure Rose can speak to um, how difficult it is for her to tell these stories about how important it is. So just uh, once again, before we have Rose speak, I, uh, the little description we have about the three stories is Maxwell wonders what happened to a baby he saved in a forest in 1943. Helen wants to know more about the fate of her brother and Rose wants to honor her mother and father by going to the places where they spent their final days. 
The survivors who appear in this film came of the age during the Holocaust and carry the burden of knowing they are the last living link to it. Helen, welcome to the show, and thank you. Sorry, I'm Ro. I'm sorry, Rose. Sorry, I don't know why I want to keep calling you that. I don't know. I do. Actually, during the war, I my name was Helen. Well, in Germany. How well, did you know well, that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was yeah. Helen. Yeah, right. oh Helen, all right. Wow. Wow. Woof. I just got a chill. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, sorry. Um, Rose, yes. um, when you were approached by them to participate in this, wh- what went through your mind? Well, because I happen to be a speaker at the Holocaust Center, I speak on a regular basis to teenagers. So I thought it would be just good to be able to show it to the world talk about my mother because she was a very special lady with the way she had the courage to push a 13-year-old off the road when she knew exactly that she's going to her death mm. and telling me that the world, the whole world has not gone mad yet. There is going to be somebody somewhere that's going to help me. And it was true. They did. I ran to a Polish farmer who gave me a Polish identity, and I became a Christian, and that's when my name was Helena. Survived in Germany as a Polish laborer under an assumed name. Had to forget the language that I knew as a child. Had to forget, because otherwise I would be dead today. My aunt, my mother's youngest sister, took me with because they wouldn't have taken. They don't, didn't take 13-year-olds. You had to be 16 years old or more. But anyway, this is the other part, the part of the film, actually, which we are talking about now, is the part of the separation, going to see if my mother, I, my father, I separated, I never said even goodbye, and I'm not sure. I was told that he wound up in Majdanek, the concentration camp near Lublin. I come from Lublin. And my mother on the road, that she had the strength to push me in, and I survived. I have a beautiful family now, and Canada took me in. Beautiful country it is. Love this country. When did you come to Canada? When I was 23 in 1952, December 52, actually, there was a picture in the star one day. And I looked at it, and I saw myself and my husband sitting there. It was December 1952 when we arrived in Halifax. And I was so shocked, I framed it. It's hanging in my house. But I arrived in Halifax. And from the minute I arrived in this country, I must say that I loved it, and I'm so grateful to it that it gave me a place where I could have a beautiful family. I have three children, five granddaughters, three great-grandchildren. They all had an opportunity to go to school, to develop and grow, and so did I. I couldn't speak a word of English when I came. My English is not bad, is it? (laughs) I like a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, yes, your English is fine. Yes, absolutely. Now, beside you is your, your granddaughter, Sarah. Sarah, uh, I- thank you for accompanying uh, uh, 
Rose, and I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts since uh, Rose decided to get involved with this? You've been accompanying her, you traveled with her uh, when you went back to, to Europe to see these places. What, what was your sense of things? I mean, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me to go to Poland with her and and see all the places that she grew up, actually be there with her, you know, the first time that she returned to the road where she was with her mother and her brothers when she was separated from them. Um, of course, it was very emotional for me to be there. Um, I felt very connected to her mom and, you know, her family and her story. I had heard these stories many times, but being there, it, it just made me feel really connected and a deeper understanding. And, you know, I, I am grateful that I was able to get the chance to go there and hear these stories that I can continue to tell for, you know, many decades. It, it's, um, ha- had you been to Europe before? I've been to Europe, but never Poland, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's an eye-opener for North Americans when you travel to Europe and you see uh, the history and you see some of these places and you see the uh, the devastation that is still lingering in some places from the Second World War uh, and and uh, it, it's when you see it it affects you differently than seeing it on TV or hearing about it. Absolutely, it was um, you know it was very special. To, we actually got to see Grotska Street, which is where she grew up, mm-hmm. and we saw the Grotska Gate, which was the separation between kind of the old part of um, the Jewish quarters where it was completely destroyed and the part that still remained. And mm-hmm. just to see kind of the modern part of the the newer town and then the old part where she was, you could really see like you know what had happened there had been completely erased and just um, developed into much more modern um, place to live, and it was, it was very interesting to see the difference between the, the separation of that. Rose, when you went back, what, 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 was your, what were your feelings like when you returned? Especially when I was walking the road that I walked last with my mother and my two brothers. I'm so thankful that my, I had three granddaughters with me, that they were surrounding me and helping me through that. Otherwise, it would have been very difficult for me. You know, the memories are never gone. I happen to have a very good memory, and it's there, and the pain is always there. My little brother was younger than me. He might have still been alive. You know, my, grand, my children grew up without anybody, without grandparents or cousins or uncles, they don't even know the meaning of it. We, my husband and I, had to try to be all of it for them. I hope I succeeded. I don't know. Yeah, my kids are very well adjusted. (laughs) (laughs) Nicely said. Just wanted to let everyone know that you're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. You can also be listening anywhere across Canada if you've downloaded the Radio Player Canada app and type in uh, ELMNTFM and uh, choose to either Toronto 106.5 or Ottawa 95.7 and you can listen anywhere right across this country. We are speaking with uh, three people involved with uh, this uh, new documentary film called Cheating Hitler, Surviving the Holocaust. Uh, very gratefully joined by Rebecca Snow, the director, as well as a couple of other uh, people associated with their stories, and that is Rose Lipsick and her granddaughter, who is accompanying her, Sarah uh, Dale. 
And uh, the show has a couple of uh, a couple of screenings. It's coming up on November sixth at uh, TIFF, the TIFF Bell Lighthouse uh, Theater, and also on Remembrance Day. It has a uh, I guess a world or a national pre- premiere uh, with uh, the History uh, History Network. Yeah, it's airing on History um, on November the eleventh at nine p.m. and it's also going to be on Global uh, on Saturday the sixteenth at nine p.m. So you're you're telling the story of three people as we've mentioned. Those three people are uh, Maxwell Smart. Yeah, names. so so this, the the film features three um, survivors who were children at the time of, of the Holocaust. Maxwell Smart, who was uh, from Ukraine, or n- what's now the Ukraine. Helen Yermas, who lives in Toronto now, but she was from Lithuania. And, and Rose Lipschitz, who is um, from uh, Toronto and born in Poland. What did you learn from doing this? Um, goodness, <laughs> It's definitely um, probably the hardest film I've ever made in my life. <laughs> Not because it was a hard film to make. It was mm. it was um, it was just very very hard subject matter. Um, you know, uh, six million people were killed. Six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust, and uh, including one point five million children, which is um, kind of an unthinkable statistic. Um, but it's 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 what happened, and we were giving um, names to some of those victims through telling the stories of these three people who actually survived. But, but uh, the families around them, the friends, um, the extended families, did not survive. Um, and you know, we take in the film, we take people back to places. You know, we've talked to Rose and Sarah about going back to the road. So you know, the power of the places. And you mentioned, you know, it's you know, for us living in North America, going back to Europe. Um, you know, really getting a sense for being in these places and and, uh, and especially if you can hear the history from someone who was there at the time. There's nothing um, more important than that. Um, and I think I just learned how important it is to keep telling this history. You know, there's a terrifying um, survey recently that uh, one in five young Canadians, millennials, millennials and Gen Zs, um, either haven't heard of or are unsure if they've heard of the Holocaust. Um which, uh, you know, as these survivors uh, get on in their years and, and some of them are no longer around, um, what is going to happen to that history when they are no longer around? Um, what is going to happen to the public memory of that and awareness? Um, so I think it can't, be, uh, it can't be overstated how important this is to keep telling this. And that's why it was great to have the um, descendants of, of, of the survivors, you know, Sarah came with us to Poland. In the case of Helen, um, she actually did not want to travel to Lithuania. She vowed never to go back to Lithuania. Mm. But her incredible grandson, Andrew, came with us and he walked, this, the pl- he went to the places to try and find answers about what happened to her little brother. Her little brother was snatched from her arms during something called a kinder action, which is when the Nazis would go into ghettos and seize all of the children. Um, and the children would never be seen again because they would all be taken off and killed. And so Andrew, Helen's grandson, goes to try and find answers about what happened to her little brother. Um, again, visiting the places, you know, going to the places, talking to historians and finding out some very um, uncomfortable truths and very tragic and traumatic uh, things. At the same time, uh, I guess there is some closure that is 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 found through this process and and some some good news that, that came out as well. Yeah, the, the, I mean, and it, absolutely. With Helen, um, you know, we felt we we did uncover some some information about what might have happened to her little brother. Um, she also had this story of meeting. She Helen was then sent to a 
a concentration camp, Stutthof, in Poland, and she met a little girl who also had a little brother. Um, so there's sort of parallel stories. That little girl didn't survive. Helen actually saw her die beside her in the camp. Um, but her little brother did survive, and we actually managed to find him for Helen. She spent her entire life wondering about her friend's little brother. And there is a very, very, very emotional part of the film where she meets him finally. He flies in from Israel. Um, and in the case of um, Maxwell, um, he has these... He, he's been living with this guilt for 75 years about a little boy who died with him in the woods when he was hiding um, and a baby that they saved. They saved a little baby from her mother's arms. Um, and Maxwell wanted to try and find answers to those... To, to the to, He wanted to try and find some kind of... Um, uh, resolution to the guilt that he feels around this little boy's death and, and saving the baby, and we helped him do that. And I think he genuinely did have um, uh, some kind of closure, if that's possible, to these events, um, to some part of his Holocaust story, which is uh, which is an amazing thing to see. Um, and and Rose, I mean, you went to you went back to Sobibor, you went to Sobibor, not Sobibor. back to you went to Sobibor, where your mother and little brother were taken the day after you lost. And saw I them. walked that road there. And the white stones that the representing the people that died there, that was the most emotional moment in my life. There was a Polish man who was telling me in Polish what happened there. And it was so riveting. I don't think I'll ever forget that. So that's where my little brother and my older brother and my mother lie somewhere there. They were gassed and burned. Did they burn them afterwards? I don't know. Or did they just bury them? I don't know. The white stones were were covering a pile of ashes, I think. I think that's what it was. So first time I went to Sobibor. Maybe if there is a God, maybe my mother knew that I was alive. I don't know. But I think she, when she was holding my little brother in the guest chambers, she thought she had cheated Hitler. She did with her little girl that she pushed off the road. I uh, appreciate you sharing that. And I, I have to admit, it's something that you said earlier um, about, uh, about the topic of this, this film, uh, not making the film but the subject matter, and I can certainly uh, uh, share with you that because in coming in to do this interview today, I had the same dread because of the subject matter and because it is so important uh, and it is so a, a difficult top topic to share, and you want to make sure that uh, you don't do disservice or, or in any way demean anything of anyone involved. And... Uh, so it's been very uh, uh, tough for me to to listen and, and to and I appreciate the strength it takes to come in and share and, and do this. So um, I, I thank you for for also um, you know all of you to bring this forward and to make this this film and to to get it out. It, it looks like it's getting a lot of attention and certainly it looks like you had to move it to a larger venue as well, which is great. Yeah, it's it's in the biggest biggest cinema in the TIFF light box uh, tomorrow night. Yeah, 
And uh, anyone who can't see it there will will be able to see it on History I Channel. I think it's sold out tomorrow night, isn't it? Sold yes, out. it's sold out tomorrow night, but uh, but it'll be airing on History on November 11th, 9pm. And, and I imagine it will have uh, other viewings at a later date, perhaps? Perhaps. Yes, <laughs> there is uh, 500 students that coming on the 26th. Oh, yes. The same place, they're going to be viewing it. Yeah. And they asked me to come and speak to them afterwards. And you're in Ottawa too, right? And I'm, yeah, and I was asked by the by the Jewish Federation in Ottawa to come on the 27th of November. They actually want to know what happened to the people that wound up in Cyprus, the, the illegal trying to get into Israel in 1947 and 48, and were incarcerated by the English and took to Cyprus, and I happen to be one of them. So they asked me to come, and I think the consul of Cyprus is going to be there, and a historian, a, a professor of history is coming, and they asked me to come. So I'm flying with my daughter there. One of my daughters is coming with me. She's the one that actually is very interested. She's published some books. And on the Holocaust, she's very much into it. Anybody who doesn't know something, ask her. She knows. She's like an encyclopedia on the Holocaust. She studied a lot of it. <clears throat> Thank you for telling us about that, Rose. Very much appreciate you you expanding on that and telling us more. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to say that uh, what a great pleasure it's been to to have you here to share this and share the stories. Uh, Rose, especially with your your uh, your openness and willing to to talk, it, it, it is much needed, and it really it really is something that we, when we hear it from from the, the the person's perspective itself, it's important. That's what the young children feel when I speak to them. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I want to say uh, thank you to my guest today, Rebecca Snow, the director of Cheating Hitler, uh, Surviving the Holocaust, as well as uh, Sarah Dale uh, and Rose Lipschitz, who ha- have come in to talk about uh, the, the involvement with the film. It's going to be airing uh, Wednesday, November 6th at 7 p.m. at the Tiff Light Be- Bell uh, Theatre. Uh, and uh, under that, that's sold out. However, it will also be pre- premiering uh, at, on the History Network on November 11th at ni- 9 p.m. So you can always catch that there. And uh, be sure to check it out online. There is some information online about it. You can uh, see uh, little bits of uh, excerpts and things from, from, from it, as well as you know, keep an eye out for where it might be showing uh, at a later date. A- any final words or comments that anyone would like to make before we ascend? Thank you for letting us be here and telling it. You're very welcome. And, and I hope you don't mind me saying this. It's not to take away from any of this or the importance of it, but I think it speaks to the importance of this of our history and uh, in in Canada Canada has not been kind to indigenous people and they've been in many ways uh, trying to assimilate and and do away with the indigenous people and I think we need to be aware this history uh, shouldn't be repeated nor should what is going on with the indigenous people in Canada as well. No I just want to say thank you I I believe you're right. Thank you and uh, once again, it's been a pleasure having you, you all in here, and I, uh, I wish you uh, all the best, and, and thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you could be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. Just type in E-L-M-N-T-F-M and go to Ottawa or Toronto. Click on your choice and you can just follow the directions there and you could be listening in no time anywhere across the country. The Toronto Film Festival, or TIFF, is premiering a new film this year entitled Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. This film is inspired by Robertson's best-selling memoir, Testimony, and follows Robertson's personal journey of overcoming adversity and finding camaraderie with the other four members of what would become the band. My guest today was directly involved with the film and can identify directly with the story about dreams coming true and a kid from Toronto who, against all odds, envisions a life for himself where he goes out into the world and achieves artistic success in the art form he was born to pursue. Now, you might be thinking, it's Robbie Robertson. Well, not yet, but it is the director of the film, Torontonian documentary filmmaker Daniel Rohr. Daniel's story reflects a similarity in Robertson's in that he's a young and started making films very young in his own way, dropping out of Savannah College of Art and Design to pursue his own style of shorter documentaries, away from what he called the other films suffering from documentary syndrome. Daniel was not the first choice to make the film for a number of reasons, including his lack of profile. But he managed to convince those involved that he had the drive, the vigor, and the chutzpah needed to pull off this film with his maxim, I'll die before this film isn't great. Danielle, shalom, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Shalom. <laughs> I'd like to add as much as we can. It's a multicultural kind of no, show. I we have appreciate here, you know? that very much. Thank you for having me. It's very good to be here it's with great. you today. It's thank great you. that you're here. And, you know, um, I, I got to say, you, as we were talking just before we went to air, that uh, you're 26. That's right. Yeah. Now, I have to say that when I was reading about this film being made, based on testimony, looking at the people involved, you you had a very uh, uh, wonderful experience of, and also, I guess, challenging experience to convince these people, like Martin Scorsese and Robbie Robertson themselves, to say, hey, I'm the guy for this. The process of making this film for me was very much uh, a, a series of impossible things becoming reality, moments where you're like, is this real life? Is this really happening? Uh, mm. uh, coming true and, and becoming my reality. And it's very overwhelming. It's very exciting. And, and, and the entire process has very much been a, a, a phenomenal ride. So having said that, let's go back a little bit, because as I pointed out, you don't have a, a great profile. You're very young in terms of the film and documentary world. But you have done some things that have touched on the indigenous world, and you've done a little bit of traveling, and you have, I guess, your own approach that is that is that has stood out to people. Well, yeah. I mean, my approach was very much uh, uh, rooted in who I am, and, and that is to say that when I decided I wanted to be a filmmaker, uh, I opted uh, to sort of uh, chart my own course, sort of. I didn't want to go to film school or, or, or go that direction. I just wanted to make films and... And I just sort of went out into the world with a, a camera and a backpack and a computer and it, and just started telling stories that were interesting to me, that I were, were, was passionate about exploring historical, political um, uh, parts of Canadian history, world history that uh, 
I thought were particularly fascinating. And it, it was through that approach of just making these films um, and doing every job myself that I was really able to sort of hone my craft and, and, uh, and, and learn how to tell a, a compelling story. So there's lots of documentary filmmakers out there, right? And most of them, I would say, want to bring their own approach and why they're doing it is unique to them. But I guess what do you think makes you stand out? What, what made you stand out to these, to these people that are involved with, you know, once we're brothers, to convince them to say, hey, this is the right guy? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a terrific question. And, and ultimately, what I think it comes down to um, is that when I had the chance to go meet with Robbie after I convinced the producers that I have to do this, because uh, I really felt it was like a, almost like a calling. It's like, oh, I have to make that film. It has to be that one. Everything about this story just spoke to me. I thought it was so extraordinary, and I knew I'd do a phenomenal job if only I could convince all these other people of that. Um, and when I eventually got the chance to go meet with Robbie, I sat across from him, and I you know, I sort of broke it down and I explained I don't have the highest profile, um, you know, but what I bring to the table that no other high profile director I'm sure would bring is this unvarnished passion and fiery energy to come in day in and day out and give this film everything I have to give. And and that was two years ago now. And so now looking at this from from uh, almost like the, the finish line as, as we're approaching our world premiere, um, you know, I take great solace, whether people love the film, hate the film, whether critics enjoy it or not. Um, you know, I don't know how it's going to be received, but what I take great solace in is knowing that I was true to that maxim that I gave this film everything I had to give. And, and it was a really extraordinary process, almost this monkish exercise to just devote my life, every single aspect of who I am into this endeavor uh, for, you know, a year and a half. And it was extraordinarily difficult. It was very, very challenging. But ultimately, um, you know, as we are about to have our world premiere opening the Toronto International Film Festival, uh, this is such an extraordinary place to be. And uh, I am just so grateful for all the people who whose shoulders I'm standing on. Mm. You said unvarnished as a way of, of sort of uh, explaining yourself or the approach you bring uh, when you were talking with Robbie. And I thought, oh, what a great word to use to a musician. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, uh, music is raw and music is real and music happens in the moment. And I think that speaks to that uh, sort of approach. Very much so. And, 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 you know, when I met with Robbie that first time, what I really tried to do and wanted to do was put a mirror up to him and be like, hey, man, I am you, but I don't want to go out and play rock and roll. I want to make films mm. and I want to tell stories similarly to, to, to Robbie in that regard. And I think he understood that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, everything... Every element aspect of this film is rooted in the music. And whenever I was, um, you know, lost or didn't exactly have my bearings in terms of where we take the film or what I needed to do next, mm. I'd put on music from Big Pink or the band or Stage Fright or Cahoots. And I just, I, that was sort of like my, my guiding star. I would just go back to that place, that critical character, and, uh, and, it gave me a lot of direction and purpose, and, and it's all rooted in, in Robbie's work. You know, uh, this film being based uh, or at least inspired by testimony and the life of Robbie Robertson, uh, when you read testimony, as I mentioned earlier, for me at least, I couldn't. My jaw was dropping almost yeah, it reads every like page. fiction. It does. It, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, 
how do you bring something like that? I mean, I guess, first of all, there's a lot to work with in there, right? Well, that's just it. I mean, one of the first challenges is like you you have, what is it, 400 pages or mm. something like this? And distilling that to 95 minutes is, is very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, um, you know, what I had to identify was what are the moments from this man's life that are the critical um, uh the critical moments that need to be in the movie. Um, and then how do you reconcile that with the archival material, yeah. with, with the music, with the uh, images and all, all of this? Uh, and it was just a question of, of distilling it and, and trying to pinpoint those moments. And what's interesting is, is some of the moments and scenes that I envisioned at the beginning of the process ultimately didn't make it into the final film, right. inevitably. And it's it's very interesting to look at my original treatments and work on the documentary and, mm. and now to see it in its final form to see how it's similar and how it's different. What kind of things are we going to see that we, we maybe didn't see or, or, or you go deeper into perhaps with the, the, with the film that, that, you know, that was not in the, in the, the book? Or? That's a great question. I think the, one of the major ways the, the film, in a way, even though it's much shorter— mm delves a little bit deeper, is that we have a mosaic of voices. Yeah. So in the book, you have Robbie telling his story, which is amazing. But in the film, you have so many other voices who were there who can add their experience and their memories and their impressions. Uh, and that's what I think is so, you know, that I love so much about the film. So, for example, uh, you know, I, I almost feel like the heart and soul of the film is Robbie's um, ex-wife, Dominique, Dominique mm. Robertson, uh, who is such a wonderful, extraordinary character. And Robbie writes about her in the book, but to have her sit across from me and, and tell me about her memories of, of those guys, her old friends, mm. uh, was just extraordinary because she was there for all of it. Yeah. She was there before the band was the band. She, mm-hmm. she met those guys when they were on tour with Bob Dylan in, right. in Paris in 66. Yeah. And so having voices like that or Jonathan Taplin, who was the band's uh, a road manager, right. yeah. or Bill Sheely, uh, who was the band's equipment manager. You know, he was extraordinary because um, he was one of these figures who was who saw everything. He was there for everything. He was like the band's little brother. You could almost say he was a, a band member. As close you? as you can yeah. be. He was an inner circle part yeah. of the family. But because he's not a big name or a big star, he is often overlooked in terms of someone to talk to. Mm. And for me, it was he was one of the magnificent interviews that I did because he saw everything. He was there for everything. And it was just like he was in the corner silently watching and, and taking it all in. And, and, and so interviews like that give the, the story this, this uh, uh, power yeah. that for me was so, so special, such a wonderful element of the documentary. Now you also have some, uh, some pretty big musical names involved as well. Yeah, that is also <laughs> true. Do you want to share with us some of those names? Yeah, I got the chance to uh, uh, sit across uh, and interview some really extraordinary musicians. Um, uh, Bruce Springsteen's in the film, Eric Clapton's in the film, Van Morrison's in the film, uh, Peter Gabriel. Um, uh, I, I also interviewed Carly Simon for the film. Mm. Um, so, so people like that mm. uh, who are either were either very close friends of Robbie's or were directly inspired by Robbie mm-hmm. and the band. Um, they were very enthusiastic to participate in this because they just have such an appreciation for Robbie's music and, and what the band did. What did this leave you with? 
Well, it's a very interesting experience focusing on someone else's life so mm. intimately. And, uh, and what it really taught me, the process of making this film and studying the intimate moments of Robbie's life and, and the consequential decisions he made as he w- went on his, his musical journey, what it really highlighted for me is, is it, I mean, what, I couldn't help but put a, a mirror up to my own life. And, you know, Robbie's life is about boldness and, and making great, making choices that might be scary or anxiety-ridden and just doing bold and cool things. And when the opportunity presents themselves, you seize them. And, uh, and it's just a, a question of, of viewing the life you want to have for yourself. It's this idea that, you know, you don't discover who you are, you invent who you are. Mm. You know, Robbie Robertson, he's this half-Native, half-Jewish kid from Toronto who decided he wanted to go be in a southern rockabilly band? So he went and and was in that, you know, rambling, uh, 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 you know, almost violent, gang infused world for a number of years. And then he hooks up with Bob Dylan. He's like, "Oh, I'm going to be this intellectual guy." <laughs> so he goes and does that. Mm-hmm. And it's just a question of being able to facilitate yourself and and fit in and 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 do great things and and make great choices. And that's something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. So it sounds like you're saying that Robbie had a, made some very conscious choices all the way along. Oh, very much so. Uh, Robbie has always been ambitious. When he was 16 years old, uh, he wanted to play with Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. They were mm-hmm. the hottest band in Canada. Yeah. You know, that's that's what he shot for. And he made that band, and they, they were together for five or six years. And then he's like, well, let's go do our own thing. But then there was this detour when this folk musician came along, mm-hmm. around called Bob Dylan. Well, Robbie and the band didn't know anything about Bob Dylan. They didn't know anything about folk music. Right. They were playing R&B, blues, yep. rock and roll, rockabilly. Yep. And Robbie identified this as a you know huge opportunity. This could be a cool detour. Let's go in this direction. Let's hook up with this guy for a second. Uh, and that's what they did. Um, and so you know, it's just about seizing opportunities and, and recognizing you know, when opportunities present themselves. And all along, he was a very sort of big film buff as well. So, so he's probably always thinking in the background about uh, the film scores and those kind of things. Well, there's a great quote at the end of the film that really speaks to Robbie's vision and ambition for his mm-hmm. own life. Uh, John Simon, who was the producer of the band's first two albums and a very, very close friend of Robbie's in the 60s and 70s, um, he, he, recalls saying to, he recalls a conversation with Robbie where, where after they recorded the first album, and it did very well, where Robbie said, uh, yeah, one day I'm going to go work with Igmar Bergman, mm. who is, of course, the you know massively influential Swedish film mm-hmm. director. Mm. And John Simon editorializes that and says, that's a very unusual thing for a rock and roller to say, I'm going to go work with Igmar Bergman. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what Robbie was thinking about. You know, Rick Danko and, and Richard and Garth right. and Levon, I don't think, had interests like that, or interested in film and cinema. And you, Robbie sort of alludes to that in the book a little bit, too, about the differences of, of how they look at things. Yeah, very very much so. You know, the, the big learning experience, you asked me a, a moment ago what, what I learned making this movie, and another thing I learned um, is that when I started making this film, I was making a, a documentary about my rock and roll heroes. <laughs> like, Levon Helm is mm. my hero. Mm. Robbie Robertson, he is an icon. After I watched Last Waltz, those guys were mythic. Right. Absolute legends yeah. Yeah. of the highest order. And what I realize now is that my film is about these five fragile young men who are trying to do their very best amidst very difficult circumstances, dealing with their own demons and their own addictions and their own insecurities and everything 
that one would have to deal with. It's a very, very human story about the fragility of creative collaboration and uh, and of brotherhood. So you've had a chance to meet all these people, which are in their own right uh, superstars in many in many ways. Um, that must have been was that overwhelming for you to sit across from some of these people? Um, I wouldn't say overwhelming at. Uh, at times, it can be nerve-wracking, yeah. and the only reason why it's a little nerve-wracking is because I have to interview them, mm-hmm. and there's something that I need from them right. uh, for this project that I'm working on. And so if one of those individuals is having an off day and is mm. a little grumpy, sure. you know, that's a little nerve-wracking. Um, do I get intimidated just by the celebrity? Um, thankfully, I don't. Uh, right. I, I, uh, you really can't. Otherwise, you wouldn't get what you wanted out of them anyway. Yeah, that, that's true, but it's just... It, it just it, you know, I think some people get very starstruck and are mm-hmm. overwhelmed to be in the presence of someone like Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. or, or whomever. But for me, it's it's, you know, I I he's just you sure. know very talented guy who who's you know still has to put his pants on one leg at a time like yep. the rest of us. So uh, someone else that you mentioned, Ronnie Hawkins. He is uh, up in Peterborough, Ontario. Oh yeah, that's great. And I interviewed him for the film. And oh good. He's one of the stars of the movie. He's so funny and mm. just such a. A, a remarkable character from a bygone era. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one of the funnest interviews we shot. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's quite the character for sure. Yeah, totally. So Daniel, uh, prior to your experience of working on this film documentary, which is kind of funny because I, I know I saw a quote about you working on things earlier, that, that the idea that um, longer documentaries fall into that uh, documentary syndrome, and now you've made this longer documentary. Yeah. Um, uh, but but your your uh, previous films took you to various places uh, within Canada and around the globe. You want to tell us a little bit about that background? Yeah, absolutely. So I I, uh, I have made films all over the world, um, but uh, something that has been a particular passion and focus of mine is indigenous um, focused stories. In Canada, why is that? And beyond, um, well, I just think it's uh, uh, you know it's critically important that uh, that these stories are heard and shared and uh, and and brought to a wider audience. Um, you know, I grew up in a Jewish family, and uh, a lot of uh, my passion towards Indigenous uh, peoples of Canada and reconciliation is rooted in the social justice values of my Jewish heritage. It's this concept of tikkun olam which is to heal the world. And that's something that resonates very strongly with me. And and, uh, and so I've very been very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to take my skill set as a filmmaker, as a creative filmmaker, and tell stories um, that otherwise may not have been told or may not have been told as effectively um, or as artfully. Um, so one of my films is called Survivor's Row, and Survivor's Row is uh, about the most prolific sex offender in Canadian history, an Anglican minister called Ralph Rowe, who abused hundreds of Native boys, Indigenous boys, in the isolated reserves of northwestern Ontario uh, for about 20 years. And uh, I shot that film in kitchener Mexipinawang and Wapakika First Nation and Wanaman Lake and, and Winnipeg and, and a little bit in Thunder Bay. Uh, and... Um, uh, it features four of these extraordinary uh, uh, men who, when they were boys, were abused by uh, by this guy Ralph Rowe, and uh, and it was a film that I knew would be very difficult to make. I think I made it when I was twenty or twenty one, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it it w- was able to be seen by a wide audience. And uh, to me, it it 
uh, you know, I was very, very grateful that I could have a hand in, in, in telling that story. But for a lot of stories like that, I'd made, made another film in Nunavut. Um, I, I take less own ownership over the, those films than a film like, you know, Robbie Robertson's documentary. Those films are like, belong to those guys. It's their story. It's their film. I just very much view myself as a creative conduit to be able to interpret and, and help them tell their stories. What did you learn from those experiences? Well, uh, politically, I, I learned uh, about, you know, just seeing up close the uh, profound disparities that exist between uh, life uh, in very, very rural, isolated indigenous communities and life in a place like Toronto or even a place like Thunder Bay uh, and uh, how we have a lot of work to do as a, a country to uh, bridge those funding gaps and, and improve the lives and experiences uh, particularly of uh, indigenous youth uh, and and children and young people, um, but also I learned a lot about resilience. I learned a lot about uh, overcoming things that you know are impossible, indescribable, um, um, you know, really, really challenging. I worked I, I worked with men who are really far along on their healing journeys, and it really. It was a very vivid illustration to me that any problem, any issue, any anything that I am struggling with can be overcome, and uh, that's something that I, I, it, it's that it's just this idea of resilience that I am always reminded of whenever I have visited an indigenous community. Um, you know, I come from a Jewish family, and uh, you know, I think the Jewish people know a lot about resilience as well. And when I've gone to indigenous communities and when you talk to elders who were in residential school or Ralph Rose survivors, um, you know, f how many hundreds of years of a systematic um, attempt to dismantle and destroy the fabric of a culture, which is the fabric of a people, um, you know, it makes me feel very proud that indigenous languages are still being spoken in Canada, that we have entered an age where reconciliation, I believe, really does matter. And although we have a lot of work to do, um, even in the time that I've been really passionate about this file um, and and about indigenous culture, uh, I have seen lots of improvement. Um, of course, I live here in downtown Toronto, and I'm not uh, living on uh, in Kitchener, Mexicanowang, or a small community. But it just seems the spirit of reconciliation is an important one in this country, and one that I think a lot of people are really thinking about. Yeah, you mentioned resilience and how the Jewish people also have that, uh, that know something about that. I'm I'm wondering, is there, did you see any other similarities or or differences in in from the the history of of what happened to the Jewish people, of course, in the Second World War, and you know. That. Well, I was once uh, I I really like to tell this story uh, to Jewish audiences and and non-Jewish audiences because it it really. Um, it, it means a great deal to me. I was in Resolute Bay, Nunavut, and mm. I made a film there. And one of the women who featured in the documentary was Zipporah Kaluk, who is an elder in that community and one of the matriarchs of that community, and, and a really generous and kind, a really wonderful woman. And I was sitting in her living room um, in Resolute, and uh, we were just talking, and she brought up and told me about her uh, Eskimo identification number, mm. which was a little dog tag the Canadian government issued in the 50s so they could keep track of all these Eskimos. 
Um, and of course, that's a horrifying concept. And she got a little dusty shoebox out of her bedroom drawer and showed me this literal dog tag. And I explained to her that, oh, my grandfather uh, had a number as well, but it wasn't around his, his neck. It was tattooed on, on his arm. And I think she really understood what that meant. And from that moment on, um, it, it was almost like she saw me in a different light. I wasn't just another Kalunak, another white man from, from the South who was coming up for whatever reason up North. Um, but she saw me as a Jewish person, as a Jewish man. And that really resonated with her. Mm-hmm. And that meant something to her. And I think she understood um, that uh, I too come from uh, a lineage of uh, a very oppressed people. And this concept of resilience that I spoke to earlier is one that I know very well. I'm very fortunate that in my own life, I have never experienced anti-Semitism or hate or bigotry of any kind. And my family after the Second World War and even before found a safe haven in this country. And I am very, very, very proud to be Canadian. Um, and, and we found a safe haven here. And I enjoy a, 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 you know, a phenomenal amount of privilege uh, in this society, and I feel very strongly that we all, anyone who is privileged, must uh, uh, must use that to create more equity and, and and harmony and balance within. So everyone in Canada uh, is thriving just as much as I am able to. Um, and and going back to this film, what uh, are your favorite pieces of music that you uh, that we might be able to play uh, on the show? Uh, maybe as we're heading out, that that might be one of your favorites. Um, oh, it's always impossible to tell. It seems to change <laughs> from from week to week. But there's uh, one song in particular that's in the film. Uh, it's called "Rocking Chairs" from mm. the band's the second album. And the reason why I I really love it is it's it's almost like this nautical song, this like naval song, um, and it's about this old man who's been on a uh, you know on the ocean sailing around for many, many, many years, and then he's coming back home to just sit on the porch and chat with his old friends and laugh with his buddies. And mm. the reason why I really like it is because I can't help but think of a 24-year-old, 25-year-old Robbie Robertson, this young guy sitting there in his studio writing about an old man looking back on his life. And as a documentary filmmaker, uh, you know that means a lot to me, and, and I can't help but see the similarities of, of myself being a young man making this film about... Uh, an older man looking back on his own life. Uh, and it's a song that, that Levon Helm sings that is just, you know, gorgeous. Love that song. There's so much heart and soul in this music that just thinking about it, like I, I can feel it uh, running through my bloodstream. You made me think of a couple other things as you were speaking there. And one of them is um, working with, as, as you say, these people that are very much involved with film, yeah. music, and, and, and you're working alongside of these people. And, um, you know, it's not like uh, you're, you're dealing with people that don't know anything about the industry or about how to put stuff together and yeah. all of this kind of thing. Did that change your approach or did that change how you move things forward? Or was it very much a collaborative kind of a, an affair where they would, you know, help you with ideas or how would that work? Uh, you know, I, 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 I think for most of the film, I was very much the creative engine of it. Mm. Uh, uh, but, you know, I had some extraordinary collaborators here. Mm-hmm. One thing that is was really special for me getting to work on this film is that I got to work with some of my, you know, f- film heroes, mm. not not just music heroes, mm-hmm. but to collaborate with them and, yeah. and, and have them give me notes on yeah. cuts and stuff like that. 
and particularly uh, Imagine Documentaries. This is Ron Howard and Brian Grazier's yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. When they became involved with with the 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 production, it was it, you know it for me it was like oh that's where I want to be. That's the type of these are the type of films I want to be working on. It was just absolutely extraordinary, and uh, um, you know it, it it was very much it, we had our own band. It, it was like all these different people who were working towards the shared. Uh, vision of making this film as strong as we could make it. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned Ron Howard and, and a few other people. Uh, there, there's, there are some big names on the back end of this as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, our executive producers are uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, Ron Howard, Brian Grazier, uh, Randy Lennox uh, here in Canada. Um, and Randy has been a phenomenal supporter of the film um, uh, from day one. And I'm very, very grateful for his support. Um and then, uh, uh, you know, just our production team. We had three production companies working on this film, and that's a lot of uh, cats at the milk bowl. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we worked together really well, and uh, it was in the spirit of collaboration. White Pine Pictures, uh, uh, Peter Raymont was the executive producer there, and, and he was just a, a you know, phenomenal collaborator. And, uh, and then Imagine, that I just mentioned, and, and Shed Creative uh, uh, Agency, uh, Dave Harris and... Uh, uh, and his whole team there were just, you know, uh, uh, terrific collaborators, very empowering for me. Wonderful, w- wonderful opportunity for you. Congratulations well, on thank this. You very and much. looking forward to seeing it and uh, wishing you all the best in the future with uh, your other projects and uh, looking forward to seeing some of that stuff. I'm sure that uh, this hasn't been bad for you. Uh, <laughs> no, it has been uh, so far so good, feeling great. That's great. Uh, I'm wondering, the other, the other thing that came to mind is, Quotes. Do you have any la- a quote that came to mind from one of the interviews that you made that stuck with you? And somebody s- might have said, <laughs> "I got a Ronnie Hawkins quote that is that is able to be shared." Over yeah, the air. <laughs> I have a Ronnie Hawkins quote that comes to mind, but I don't think I should share that one on the air. Okay. Um, no worries. Listen, I, once again, I just want to say uh, thank you very much for coming in and being a part of our program. It's been great having you here. I uh, wish you all the best in the future. We look forward to seeing the film. Well, I hope so. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to chat and uh, always love to talk about Robbie and the band. So thank you. Thank you very much. Once again, our guest today, Daniel Rohr. He is the director of Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the band. And don't go away. We'll be right back after this song by the band, Rocking Chair. 